four corners. So glad that you're here. This is our uh, fourth week of the series about family and focusing upon the future and that the future isn't written yet. We can still make changes that have a deep impact on the rest of our lives and on the people that we love. Now, before I jump into it, I've got to give you two quick updates. Um, our building is moving along so incredibly fast in one sense. They're getting a lot done. In another sense, we're not there yet. It's going to be a couple more weeks. In the next week or so, you'll get an email if you fill out a Connect card uh, from us letting you know the exact date we believe we're going to be in. But we've already set the public, go public date um, when we're going to invite everybody from the community, ask you to invite all of your friends. And that Sunday is December 9th. Now, we're going to be in long before then, but December 9th is our go public. That gives us several weeks to get the kinks worked out. It would be really bad if we had a lot of guests and the toilets didn't flush, for instance. That, that could get problematic, or if the heat didn't work, that sort of thing. So we're going to get all the kinks worked out with the family here before we have our guests over. So December 9th is the absolute go public date, but we'll be in before then. So I wanted to make you aware of that. And then the second thing I wanted to let you know is, is that this Tuesday is uh, somewhat of an important day. Um, I like to just take a moment. We're not a political church. I'm personally very political. I know exactly who you should vote for. Um, <laughs> I'm personally very political, but as our church, our politics are very simple around here. We believe Jesus changes hearts. We believe that our ultimate hope rests in him. We also believe that every person should take up the responsibility to be a good citizen and know the issues and vote the values that you believe God's put on your heart. So we encourage you to do that. Um, the only people in this room that would frustrate me are those that don't vote. Although as an American, you can exercise your vote, your right not to vote. We'll just make fun of you. Okay. Um, you can certainly do that. So please, um, Lift up your responsibility, take on that responsibility to be a good citizen and to be, we hope, a good Christian and vote the values you believe that God has put on your heart that make the biggest impact that, uh, that you can make as, as a voter. So, so that being said, um, a lot of folks are going to be singing a song over the next few weeks. I bet you see it a few times. It's called God Bless America. Now I bring that phrase up because we're just a little bit talking about the election, but also I want to zero in on one of those words. It's the word bless. The word bless. It actually relates to what we're going to talk about qu quite a bit. The word bless in your Bible is a special word. I, I grew up in the South. The word took on a, a unique kind of meaning. You would hear nice old ladies say about somebody, oh, bless their heart, which of course means what a stupid idiot. Um, you, know, you know how that works. But in the Bible, bless had a kind of a, a special meaning. Uh, uh, you, you may not know your Bible was written in primarily two languages, um, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And in, in both Testaments, the word bless is translated from the original languages into English as the word bless. And in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word bless means to literally bend your knee in front of somebody, to, to bow in front of them. It was a way of, in the ancient Near Eastern world, of giving honor, identifying the significance of somebody, to prefer them. And so in the Old Testament, when you read somebody blessed somebody else, what that typically means is they were bestowing some type of honor, significance, identifying the value and worth of that person. Uh, and, the, and the New Testament's very, very, very similar, although it doesn't connote the action of bending. It very much indicates the idea of speaking good over them, speaking the good about them. So a very, very positive thing. There's very little, very little that you can do in your family that is any more important one of the most important, I butchered that. Would you let me back up 35 seconds? One of the most important things you can do in your family that will have a significant impact on them is to learn the power of blessing. There are few things in life more powerful than blessing other people. 
to speak good over them, to prefer them, to give them the honor that is due them, the honor you want them to see that they have in your eyes, to speak powerful words over them that give life. Blessing is a powerful force. And it shows up in families all too infrequently. Blessing is is a tool that God has given all of us as a way of making people understand just how meaningful they are to us, of helping them to see the the value we have in them, how important they are, how special they are, uh, of identifying the potential they have in life and speaking that over them in a way that it drills into their hearts and encourages them and gives them strength to handle the difficulties and the challenges in life. The truth is, is life has a way of just hurling difficulty in our path, a, a way of kind of putting stumbling blocks in front of us, of taking the wind out of our sails, of chipping away at the foundation of our, of our souls sometimes, I, I don't want to overstate, but certainly chipping away at our emotional well-being. And God has put in our lives this institution called the family where what he meant for it to be was a place of development, a place of encouragement, a place where our potential was called out, a place where people spoke in prophetic terms the good over us that God was already building into our lives, but we just haven't had the time to live it fully out. But I bet your family's a lot like mine. It hasn't always been the best place to experience all the kinds of things that I'm trying to describe. All too often, our families are not the place that become that incubator of our potential, of speaking our value and worth, of of holding us in the value that God holds us in. All too often our families are, well, they're segmented and disintegrated and they have conflict, unresolved, sometimes generationally. And there are four ideas I'm going to speak with you about today. Four, well, they're huge ideas. They're they're relatively simple to, to understand, at least on a rudimentary level, but their implications are huge. And all four of them fall under the category of what it means to live as a blessing to others. What it means to capture the biblical concept of blessing those in our house. Blessing those that we're connected to by blood. Blessing those that we're connected to in some legal legal arrangements where we call each other family. They're powerful terms. They deal not with the positive concept so much. When we get into it, you'll see this. They, they don't deal so much the positive concept of blessing. They kind of deal with some of the, the opposite cousins of that term. So we're going to come at it kind of in a, in a roundabout way, but I think the point will be very clear to you. Before I jump right into the first of the four, I want to tell you just a little story because I, I think it accurately describes how we kind of uh, deal with some of the forces in family. When Jill and I were uh, first married, um, we lived in Tennessee where, where we were both going to college. We both graduated and as soon as I graduated, we moved to Kentucky, where I went to school for a year. And then at a year into our time in Kentucky, where I was going to, to seminary, which is where the school where, where people who want to be a pastor go, um, my, my mentor from Tennessee called and said, I've taken a church in Tampa, Florida. Would you like to come and, and live here? And I'll pay for your school and give you a house to live in. I'm no dummy. That made sense to me. And I was racking up debt over here. So we, we jumped in our car, moved down to Florida. And it, and it completely was you know, radically different than anything we had ever experienced up to that point. The weather was dramatically different. But one of, the, one of the craziest things about Florida was all of the insects and bugs. See, in Tennessee, we had roaches. We did. We, we didn't. Well, we had them once, but I got rid of them. But, but in Florida, in Florida, they had palmetto bugs. 
That's what they call them. Let me just say what they are. They're flying roaches is what they are. And in, in Tennessee, we'd have like, you know, a few little creepy crawlies. But in Florida, they had bunches. And they had this way of constantly coming into your house. It took me six months after we moved to Florida to quit kind of jerking around and being afraid every time I saw a lizard move out of the corner of my eye. I knew it was a snake that was going to bite me because in Tennessee, snakes are a bad thing. In Florida, they're, they're all over the place. So one, one day, my sister who was living with us, she calls. Jill and I were out um, doing some shopping. She calls, and she says, you've got to come home. There's a snake in the house. There's a snake in Exactly. Oh, exactly. This is not a good thing. Um, we had never had a snake in our house before. I had been doing some home remodel, and I had left the, the, the little um, seal at the bottom of the door off over, overnight. And I guess the light or something it had attracted the, the, the demonic snake into our house. And, <laughs> and, and so my sister was there, and she was freaked out. So, so we come home. And um, she had been in the, in the bathroom kind of doing her hair up, and she looked down, and there was a snake like right up against the, the sink, um, the sink cabinet. And she, she was freaked out. She shut the door. She put a towel by the door to make sure the snake couldn't come out. She called us. I looked. I looked and looked and looked for the snake. Got down on my hands and knees looked for the snake. I was scared to death. Got a flashlight, but I was the only man in the house. I figured I got to do something or else they'd make fun of me. So I'm walking around looking for this snake. Can't find it. I convinced the ladies to help me look for the snake. We locked Ellen in a room up on a cabinet so the snake couldn't get her. Um, <laughs> she was very little at the time. We never found the snake, so I, I'm scared. I'm thinking, I'm not going to go to bed with a snake in my house. Right? Because that's, that's intelligent, right? I'm not going to go. So we get in the phone book. This is like pre-internet days. I'm, I'm a little older than I look. Um, <laughs> it's a little it's pre, pre-internet days. And um, so we, we find like pest control. Well, it's after hours. Nobody's open. If there's an emergency, call this number. We call the number. It's a recording, which is very frustrating, by the way. And so we finally just called the cops out of desperation. And within 20 minutes, we have two uniformed policemen with flashlights and guns looking through our house. For the snake, I didn't realize, but just a few months before, they had found a coral snake in our neighborhood. Exactly. If you don't know what that means, it means they kill you. All right? So, it, it was a, so we're walking around the house looking for this snake. We, we don't find it. So what I decided to do was, if it was in the bathroom, I was going to take everything out of the bathroom. I went and got a sledgehammer. I knocked down the sink, pulled the cabinet. No lie. Pulled the cabinet. There was the snake. And in Jesus' name, I killed it with a shovel <laughs> right there. Um, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing event in, in, in my life. I became a man that day. Um, <laughs> it was incredibly powerful. Uh, and listen, if you're like into all that stuff, snakey stuff, PETA, whatever, go ahead and send me emails. My name is Greg at fourcornerchurch.com. I'd love to receive your emails about that. Now, now the reason I tell that story is because it's true. But when I was preparing the message today to, to, con- to kind of contrast the idea of blessing and some of the other things that go along with it, but maybe kind of approach it from a negative perspective or at least from the, from the opposite side of the coin, that idea of us being so radically committed to finding that snake, to rooting it out, to no matter what it was going to take and who we had to bring alongside, we were not going to sleep in the house with the snake, not even one night. We were committed that that thing was going to be gone. It was going to be out of our lives. I mean, all of us, we were, we were centered around that idea. There are forces at work in families that are incredibly destructive in our culture. They're at work in our families because the truth is they're at work in our lives. <laughs> and sometimes the Bible, as God's gift to us, is so crystal clear at identifying them 
that it, it is in effect giving us marching orders to root out those forces because if we don't, there's real danger. There's real challenge. There's real harm to be done. And so the Bible sheds light on a few key ideas and says, listen to me, I'm God. I'm writing this love letter to you called the Bible. And I want you to know how dangerous this is. And if you don't deal with it, it would be like sleeping in a house with, with poisonous snakes and saying, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll get to it at some point. And there's a verse in our Bible that kind of talks about one of these concepts. And we're going we're gonna to tease it out. But it's in, it's in your Bible in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is in your New Testament. And it was written primarily to Christian Jews. They were Jewish people who had begun to believe in Jesus. And they were struggling with the transformation. Well, what does it look like to maintain our heritage? We're proud of our heritage. Our DNA is important to us. Our history is important to us. And yet Jesus has radically changed our lives. What does it look like to live in that kind of a juncture? And so the writer of Hebrews pens this letter and says, Man, our history is powerful and it's good and there's so much wonderful about it. But at every level, Jesus is better. And anything you give up for Jesus, it really just helps you anyway. And so even those of us that aren't Jewish by heritage, we can read the book of Hebrews and we get the common message. Jesus is better than anything. And the writer goes on to say Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than miracles. You get Jesus right and everything else begins to get right in our lives. And so in these very pregnant moments in the book, the author would give us two or three sentences and say, well, one of the implications of living with Jesus who is better than anything is, is you get to experience this benefit or you get warned about this potential catastrophe and, and he wants to help you in this particular hurdle. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, here's what it says on the words, the words behind me on the screen or in your Bible, it says, see to it that no one, and in the Greek, the, the phrase no one means no one, no one falls short of the grace of God. Oh, that, that sounds wonderful. But then he teases it out and tells us how we might fall short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. Now, Pastor Nate had to practice the big hoo-ha that we're going to do when people come up out of the, the water, which is awesome. I'd like for you to just say this phrase with me. Bitter root. Ready? One, two, three. Bitter root. In the Bible, this is a bad thing. Bitterness is a bad thing. It's bad in the Bible because God knows what bitterness entrenched in our hearts. That's what bitter root means. Bitterness that's taken hold. Bitterness whose reach have, the roots have reached down into the ground. God knows just how troubling and destructive, how venomous bitterness is in our lives. And you don't have to look into many families to see the challenge that unresolved anger and resentment, and I don't just mean over simple little things like we did Christmas at your house last year and now you don't want to come to my house. I'm talking about deeply entrenched, sometimes generational bitterness will do in a family. It's completely destructive. And so this verse, in very simple ways, sandwiched in a chapter that is just so rich and powerful, and what's funny is that this verse, it really does fit the context and the heart of the chapter, but it jumps out almost as unique as well. The Bible warns us to not let bitterness 
and the root of bitterness, long ago old happenings that have seeded themselves in our hearts, to not let that root grow and to not let the implications of that thing manifest in our life. Because when it does, look at what the verse says, it tends to cause trouble and to defile many. Unresolved conflict, roots of bitterness, have a way of not just destroying the Bible, says here in little form, but if you know, if you think I'm stretching this one passage, read the book of Proverbs this month. 31 chapters, a chapter a day. Read the book of Proverbs and see how many times it talks about anger and bitterness and unresolved conflict and the destructive force it has in life. Pick up any self-help book and read what it says about anger and bitterness and unresolved conflicts and a lack of forgiveness and the impact that has on relationships, on marriages, on parents and kids, on adult kids and their aging parents. Bitterness is a wildly destructive force. And the truth of the matter is, for a lot of us, and if not in this room, people we know close by name, they have that snake of bitterness alive in their house and they're sleeping away like it doesn't matter. And it's doing its business, producing fruit in our lives that is destructive. And, well, it's anything other than the blessing that God wants us to live in. It destroys that incubation that the family is supposed to be. The incubation of our value, our worth, our sense of belonging, our sense of love. That it's a family, you can't get kicked out of this. That you're here, and that when you fail, there's still a place for you. Bitterness has a way of destroying all that God meant for families to be. And so very black and white terms, the Bible says, don't let that root of bitterness, don't let those old wounds crop up, because when they do, they cause trouble and they defile many. They mess them up. They, they rob them. And so the Bible gives us four practical ideas to deal with bitterness and to live more directly in a life of blessing. And I want to bring a little clarity to these ideas because when I've chatted with families that have been going through difficulties, when I've looked at my own situation, my confusion on these four ideas has robbed me of the power that they have. These biblical ideas have power to free you. They have power to allow you and me to live in the umbrella of blessing in our personal lives, but in the umbrella of blessings in our families. When I live in harmony with the Bible on these four ideas, not only do I benefit, my wife benefits, my kids benefit, our church benefits, the people I engage with benefit, and blessing begins to spread around. And these are all in some regards directly theological and biblical concepts. They've been kind of commandeered by the, by the, the self-help movement, and so I want to strip them of some of the, the psychobabble, and I want to get down to the heart of the matter on all of them. So four big ideas in dealing with bitterness in order to help us live a life of blessing. Here's the first one. The biblical concept of repentance. Repentance. I started with this one because repentance isn't about the dynamic that happens within your family when somebody offends you. Dependence isn't dependent on anybody else in your world at all making the benefits of repentance available to you. 
Repentance is the simple biblical idea that says when there's a wrong, when something has happened, when two people are at odds with each other or conflict exists, repentance is the biblical idea that says I'm going to take responsibility for everything that I can take responsibility for. I'm going to take the part of this conflict, this difficulty, this challenge, this sin, and the part that I'm responsible for, and I'm going to quickly gravitate towards what's my fault, and I'm going to own it. Repentance stands in stark contrast to the tendency that exists in my life to want to blame everybody and everything for all the things I do wrong. I have this remarkable propensity. I'm incredibly skilled at finding fault with you when I don't like what you do. When I don't like how what you do impacts me. When I get a little frustrated with you. It doesn't matter if I was up all night dealing with a sick child, carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. If you happen to pass me on the highway in just the wrong attitude. Have you ever noticed people do that? They'll pass you with a bad attitude? Okay, that's just me, I guess. But... <laughs> But it's amazing how quickly I can find fault with other people, especially if I feel a little heat myself. In school, when I would get a bad grade, you want to know whose fault it was? The teacher's. Right? It was the teacher's fault. It didn't matter that I didn't study. What mattered was is she had a quiz or a test that had unfair questions. And sometimes, sometimes I would try to convince my parents just how terrible this teacher was now my parents are old school they never believed it they they operated on the rules that if you got in trouble at school you get in trouble at home right when i was a teacher somebody didn't train parents right because when a kid would make a bad grade in my class you know whose fault it was mine let me tell you what repentance does repentance begins to undermine bitterness begins to kill the snake of bitterness because it causes us to take responsibility. It asks this question first. Is any part of this conflict, 1% of it or 100% of it, my fault? And if it's not my fault directly, it's between 1% and 100% of it. Is there something I could have done to prevent? Repentance is more concerned, and here's, here's the trick of bitterness. Here's how it takes root. Repentance is more concerned with us taking responsibility than it is in finding fault in other people. Let me just ask you men. In your marriages, if you got more concerned with taking responsibility for the part of the conflict that's yours, even if it's just 1%, would that have a positive or negative impact on the intimacy in your marriage? Ladies, if you were more concerned to take responsibility for the 2% that's you, it's clearly 98% your husband, almost always. We agree, so just let me into your heart for just a moment. You're fine. It's him. But if you would take just 2% responsibility and own it and do what you could to move the ball forward back to that neutral ground of we love each other, we want intimacy, we want to be able to talk civilly, we want to be able to resolve this, if you would just take part that is yours and own it, the Bible calls that process repentance. The idea is that I'm going in this direction, and in families, it's typically away from each other. I'm walking in this direction, and I'm going to turn now. I'm going to walk back towards you. I'm going to do the part that's mine. I can't guarantee that you're going to walk towards me. I don't even know where you are, but I'm going to turn. 
I'm not waiting on you to apologize, make, make amends, repay, acknowledge. But the part that's mine, I want to quickly gravitate towards holding it and saying, I blew it here. I didn't blow it over here, maybe, but I blew it here. And louder than anything else I want you to hear, this part is mine. The Bible says that we repent with God. We go to him and we say, I'm a sinner. Around here we use the phrase, we say we're not perfect. But it's, it's deeper than just the simple acknowledgement. It is, I own that I operated in rebellion, that I had sin in my heart. That I may not be responsible for everything that happened, but I'm responsible for a lot of it. And when we come to God with that attitude and we say, look, I can't save myself from this situation. I want to receive the grace that you have offered me and take upon the forgiveness of my sins. When we do that, that's the first step towards a relationship with God. It also is often the first step towards rooting out this bitter root that grows so freely in too many homes. Repentance is a powerful force. It's where you take responsibility for what's yours. Let me give you another one. Forgiveness. Hey, if you're not 100% happy right now with where your family is, if you believe right now that your family is on a trajectory that if it plays out exactly as it is, it doesn't take you to all the places you hope your family goes, if you look at your kids and say, the relationship, the dynamic that exists with us right now, I don't want it playing out like this for the next 50 years. One of the tools that God has given us is the tool of forgiveness. It's, it's like, it's like a, a herbicide on, on, on weeds in the garden. It's like, it's like putting Roundup on, on the weeds in your yard. Forgiveness is a powerful force that the Bible talks about in very black and white language and says, if my people will gravitate toward the value of forgiveness in their homes, it'll change everything. The tone and, and the temperature of our house relationally and emotionally will change. Repentance is where you grab hold of what's yours, but forgiveness is where you let go of what other people owe you. The idea is some offense happens. Somebody says a, a harsh word. Somebody doesn't complete a promise. Somebody makes a promise and, and breaks it. Somebody is not loyal. Forgiveness, like repentance, is not dependent upon other people. It's for the person who has been wronged who, owe, who is owed something. Because of those dynamics I just described, somebody wronged me, they broke a promise, they didn't keep their word, they disappointed me. Forgiveness happens when I say in my heart of hearts, I'm not going to hold that against this other person. When forgiveness is alive and well in our families, it allows the fact that every one of us is human, every one of us fail. Every one of us wound those around us. It allows those true statements to not become the key identifier of our family. Those true things that you're going to disappoint, you're going to fail, those don't define what our family's about. When forgiveness is alive and well, rather than these failures and disappointments defining, an attitude of acceptance and grace begins to define the family. There's a lot of confusion about forgiveness in the church it's pretending as if it didn't happen i guess is what some people say I, I kind of reject that i don't think that's a biblical idea forgiveness is a very conscious choice where i'm very aware of what happened 
but then I choose to not hold it against you. I choose to not treat you in a different way because of it. You clearly owe me, but I'm going to take the bill that you owe me and I'm going to rip it up by my own choice. Not because you manipulated me into it, not because you said magic words, not because you did it in the right timing, not because I'm fearful of you, but I'm going to choose to not hold this offense against you. I'm going to make a conscious decision to treat you as if I'm not holding a bill over your head. Every time I look at you, I think of the weight of what you owe me. It's significant. Repentance is, I take responsibility for mine. Forgiveness is, is I don't hold you responsible for yours. I think this is among the hardest things to do in life. Because sometimes the wrongs are so deep. They're so frequent. They're so egregious. They're so horrible. And so the Bible doesn't come to us and say, would you forgive because um, I, as God, need you to? The Bible comes to us with a different message that took me years to grab hold of. God encourages me to forgive because he knows what unforgiveness does to me. God encourages families to be a place where forgiveness happens because he knows what unforgiveness does in families. Some of you are are so hurt right now that you're starting to already ask the questions, what about this scenario, what about that scenario? Can I just be blunt with you? I, I don't know. There are certain exceptions all around. Even the Bible allows for some of this. And, and, and maybe, you know, we could help, we could have lunch, we could talk about that. But the general pattern of the Bible is, for most of us, most of the time, we're supposed to walk around with very short accounts, very little IOUs, or rather you owe me's. And when we do that in families, it changes the tone and the temperature of our house emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. I do what I can to take responsibility, and I don't hold what you've done to me against you. I choose to step over the gap. I choose to pay the bill. There are all kinds of parables and wisdom sayings in your Bible saying, here's why you should forgive. One of the reasons is because we've been forgiven so much. But one of the primary reasons is because if you and I don't forgive, do you want to know who's hurt more by our own unforgiveness? We are. For I hold on to what you owe me. There is the place that the root of bitterness is growing in my life. There is the place that if that root of bitterness takes fruit, it will harm, as the verse told us, many. It will cause trouble. General, undefined trouble that tends to creep into every nook and cranny of your life. Unforgiveness over here with person X will probably have an impact on person Y over here. And so the Bible encourages us because it's a love letter from our Father to forgive not because it makes us feel more spiritual. In fact, sometimes you'll feel like junk when you do it. But because it frees you. And it frees me of being held by that penalty, that IOU. Repentance and forgiveness are powerful forces in the war against the root of bitterness. Let me give you one more. You don't hear much about this anymore. Restitution. Restitution. This is somewhat of a legal term. If you're in the legal profession, if you've ever been sued, 
you may have heard this term. It's the idea that there's been a wrong committed. I'm at fault. Now, I need to try to make up the ground that my fault cost you. I'm going to pay you, <laughs> to use monetary terms. But biblically speaking, restitution is a powerful force in the life of a believer who wants his life and the life of the people he loves to live under the umbrella of blessing. It's when I say, I, I know I've done wrong. And maybe you did some wrong too. But we're going we're gonna to cancel this out. I'm going to take ownership. I'm not going to hold it against you. But I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to begin to try to give back to you as best I can some of what was lost. Now the truth is, Sometimes this is just completely impossible to completely repay in an apples-to-apples apples kind of way what's been stolen. But the effort to make restitution, a heart that says, the key word here is, I'd like to restore. I'd like to restore to you what my offense has cost you. The effort to make restitution is incredibly healing. Let me ask you again, men and women. What if you took up on your shoulders the responsibility to restore what your offense, your laziness, your immaturity, your sin in your marriage has caused? What if you said, from this moment forward, I'm going to find one area where I have failed, and I'm not just going to re accept responsibility. I'm not just going to try to hold short accounts, but I'm going to try to make up some of that ground. That's the whole principle of restitution. Now, the nature of life is such that sometimes offenses that have happened way back here can't be fully restored in the same way. But I'm telling you, I have seen it a dozen times when somebody says, I may not be able to repay in an exact apples-to-apples -apples kind of way, but my heart, my attitude, my response is, everything that is within me, I'm going to deal with this offense that I caused. You know what I've seen almost every time? Incredible healing in families. Incredible healing, not just in families in general, but in that person's own individual lives. I have seen, believe it or not, teenagers look at their parents and say, I have acted like an immature oaf for these last several months. I am sorry. I'm really sorry. Some of what I did was caused, or at least was connected to, some of the things over here and these dynamics in our home, but I'm not going to hold that against you. And then they have said, you're going to see a change in me that looks like this. Almost instantly, hope falls across the face of those parents who are thinking, what are we going to do with this kid? How have we failed? How have we come to this point? This was never our hope. When I held little Johnny in my arms on that first day that he was born, I never thought we would be at this place. Whoa, but restitution, this biblical idea of restitution, changes the entire temperature of a house. And it undoes the future you're headed to and makes the future that you're really going to experience much more fall under the umbrella of blessing that is God's design for all of us. It's a thoroughly biblical idea. It's when Jesus says to, to the tax collector, yeah, you stole a lot. And then before he can finish, the tax collector says, and I'm going to repay people, not just dollar for dollar. I'm going to give them more than what I took because what I have done so offends me. I want to do all I can to close the gap biblical, life-changing, and it destroys the power of the root of bitterness. One last major concept. This one I think is so beautiful. Reconciliation. Let me, let me, let me, let me let you off the hook just a moment in case you're feeling the weight. 
Forgiveness, listen, the person that offended you, you offer forgiveness before they ever ask. That will free you. I'm not saying you have to look in the eye and say, I forgive you and in some way have an emotional release. I'm just saying, in your heart of hearts, you ask God to help you. God, I don't want to hold this thing against them. And it doesn't matter if they ever change or not. I've known people who have had the horror of sexual abuse happen to them when they were a child. And that legitimate, completely understandable root of bitterness grows in their life. And I have seen them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not certainly not in their own strength, come to a point where they, they were able to release that horrible thing. Sometimes after years of talking and loving environment and memorizing scripture and therapy and, and the freedom that has come their way, it wasn't dependent on what that person did to them at all for them to walk in the forgiveness and the freedom of that. Reconciliation is similar but different. Reconciliation is when you do your forgiveness and then an offending party does theirs and then you begin to move together. Forgiveness is completely independent of what somebody else does, but reconciliation takes two people deciding we don't like the gap that exists between us. I'm going to do what I can to move back to the middle and you do what you can to move back to the middle. It's when two people say, we don't like where we, how did we wake up and find ourselves in this place? Two people do it individually. Maybe walking through some of these other words, but they decide, I don't like the gap. I don't like the root of bitterness. The temperature in this house is not warm enough. And and I want to do something about it. I'm going to do what I can to move back. I'll repay whatever I can do. I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm not keeping score anymore. If I'm only keeping score, it's only going to be the part that I'm doing and the part that I'm playing. When two, listen, I'm telling you, when a man and a wife who are thinking, we're never going to be able to have the kind of marriage I dreamed of when the day we said I do, when they decide that they're 100% committed to reconciliation and that maybe they can't do it in their own strength, but they're going to let Jesus change their lives, deal with their memories, give them power to act in forgiving ways, even if their heart isn't fully there. Reconciliation is not only possible, it tends to happen. It's a beautiful force when the Holy Spirit begins to remind us of just how fallen we are and god looked at us each one of us and said you're a complete and total mess you're spiritually you're an idiot there were things you knew you shouldn't do and you did them anyway and god looks at us and says but i'll cover it and then he looks at us and says now are you going to live in that same general attitude with the family that i've given you to live with And I'm telling you, this is the hardest stuff to do. But all the benefits isn't that you get to check some mark on the spiritual scorecard that says forgiveness done. It is the pure freedom that you walk in when you choose not to hold people. Not to hold those accounts against them. Not to keep that that root of bitterness thriving and alive. Now there are massive implications for what we're talking about. In my life, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like this sermon. It has caused me way too much work this week. <clears throat> On top of it, in the last couple of weeks, we've done the first two funerals ever 
in the life of this church. And so God's been dealing on my heart with some of this stuff. I've had opportunity to act like a complete idiot in the middle of it and needed to live out every one of these things in dramatic form. I'm telling you straight up, this is not the easy stuff. This is the deep stuff of Scripture. And it lays right on the surface. (laughs) You know how often that happens in the Bible? The deep stuff is right on the surface. And we'll bypass that and we'll argue all day long. Genesis chapter 1. Mechanically, exactly how did God create? And all the while, God's saying, would you shut up? And would you deal with repentance and forgiveness? There might be some restoring you need to do. You want to walk in the blessing? Start taking this stuff seriously. Listen, you want to start writing a future for your family that is different than the trajectory that you believe you might be on right now? Start taking these biblical concepts seriously. And even if the other people in your household who share your address or your DNA don't want to do that, you watch what happens when you do it. The freedom you experience. The benefit that comes to your life is you submit fully to Christ. That's why I believe that Jesus really is the only vehicle by which the human heart is changed. As much as I want my candidate to win on Tuesday, he can't change a human heart. Oh, he can set a few structures here and there that make things maybe more level or more fair or more just or, or more competitive, depending, I try to use all the buzzwords, so depending on your, on, on your way. But I'm giving my money and my effort to the cause of Christ because Jesus is the one that changes families and hearts and rewrites the stories of the addresses represented in our community. I think that's where the passion should be. And when we step in fully with him, he deals with us in very objective and black and white terms that even a baby, a child, can understand. And he calls us to some of the most difficult things we'll ever do. And yet, as we do them, they change everything. That's what these baptisms will represent in just a moment. A complete and total change. Your family's future isn't written yet. Don't give in. Stay up all night, kill the snake. Call in the help. Do what you need to do. Let's take a, a few next steps together. Would you grab your connect cards? We believe that a relationship with Jesus is the biggest deal in life. These baptisms, they represent that decision, and that's why we celebrate them so heavenly. Uh, so, so heavily and heavenly, um, we celebrate them that way. So next step A, if you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus, then know that he's not holding an account over your head, that the sins and the stupidity and the gap you've created with him, he's willing to cover it. The Bible calls that salvation. Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you to forgive me, and I want to follow you with my life. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that he'll save you, and you can begin a relationship with him. The Bible calls it a new birth or a rebirth or a a new beginning. We want that for you. You can check the box, and we're going to pray about that. And in your own way, you can use my words. God, I'm a sinner. I want you to lead my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. But that's that's exactly how simple it is to begin with him. And then we'll send you some information in the mail about that to help you understand it more fully. Next step B, if you'd like to get baptized, we'll send you some information and communicate with you just like with these folks, and we'll get that process rolling so you can go public with your faith. Next step C. Can we be honest in the room? 
for some of us. I've let bitterness take root, and I'm asking God to help me release it. Like, I don't think that you and I are capable on our own, just by our own willpower, to do this stuff. That's why God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to believers. And he wants us to kind of vet out what that means, the power that's available to live the life that he's called us to. If you want to do that, sometimes it begins with confession. Yeah, that's me. That's me. The staff and I will pray with you about these things, that the reality of what's available in Christ will become more clear to you, and the benefits of following his directives will become more real to you. How about next step D? While you were talking, Ben, God brought a person to my mind today that I need to re-engage with grace, or maybe for the first time, engage with grace. My prayer before I got started was that God would not just let us agree with this stuff, yes, Ben, good stuff, but that he would bring to mind the specific places we needed to lean in. If it's repentance or forgiveness or restitution or reconciliation, what do you need to do in that one place? And next step B. The truth is, and my heart breaks for you, I've been here, friends. I'm so hurt. I feel completely incapable of moving forward. I want to tell you, there's hope. There is hope. You and Jesus together are bigger than the hurt you feel. Your life doesn't have to be defined by that thing. But you do have to grab hold of Jesus and walk where he leads you. Let's pray about these things right now and then let's celebrate our awesome God. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you haven't been ambiguous about your heart for us. You want us to live in the umbrella of blessing. And you haven't been ambiguous about how we can grab hold of the promise that is ours. God, the truth is some of us have some real business to do these next seven days. It'll be hard. It'll be uphill. And yet, God, you promised to go along with it. That if we'll not just say you're Lord, but if we'll actually follow you, it can change everything. God, I want to pray for each household here that you would do your restorative healing work. I want to pray for each relationship that you would do your healing restorative work. And you would help us, Lord, to follow you humbly and willingly and bravely. God, thank you for each person that's deciding today. They want you to be their Lord and Savior. They're saying in their hearts, Jesus, be Lord of my life. And God, thank you for each soul being baptized today. We celebrate with them. We're so happy about the potential you've put in them. And we celebrate it all today in this place. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen.